Hi, I'm Keith Ruckhouse. And I'm Alec Tsukatos. And together we are doing our second session of the Boulder Bolding, where we explore the uh, academic life and the teachings of Kenneth Bolding. And just want to reiterate a few things from our first session. As Alec pointed out to us, there was three things that Kenneth was sort of known for. And uh, could you reiterate uh, what those were? So one of them was the his conducting of peace rather than the conducting of war. Why don't we start Yes. There? And so that part of it is somewhat different than nonviolence. It's not keeping from being violent. It's also acting in peaceful ways. So there, there is an activity there rather than an absence of violence. The second one was uh, steady-state economics, of course, which we will talk about more extensively uh, this second session. Uh, the third one was the Grant's economy. That is, and there, that's where he diverged from normal economics, which usually has to do with exchange. You uh, sell me something and I pay you. I get something that I want and you get something that, I, uh, that you want. Whereas with the Grant's economy, it's a one-way transfer. So it's like a parent transferring to a child something that the child needs or wants without requiring anything in exchange. So that's the model, extending it not only to uh, something outside of the family, but to the society as a whole, you yep. see. Right. There was actually a fourth one that we did mention as well last time, which is general systems theory. Correct. And yeah, the right. principal idea there is that you can never intervene or act in a particular way without having side effects ever. Right. You always have side effects. So um, That's sort of bucks against the sort of libertarian point of view that I can act independently of, of others yes, and, and suffer and only more, my own consequences. Certainly with libertarian, but also with individualism and also with a whole variety of other things. You cannot attempt to get something for yourself without necessarily depriving it from somebody else or complementing uh, it with somebody else. Okay. It's not always a negative uh, exchange, in other Correct. words. So that has influenced my own thinking very, very much. Okay, so our session this time is going to introduce us to uh, steady-state economics. And we discussed just very briefly the first time about your experience of the lack or the want in your study of economics, that something was missing, something was was off. And we want to explore that a lot more. I'm sure that most of us feel that way and quite strongly. But I do want to ask one question about steady state economics uh, before we get into our introduction of it. Is this steady state thing a, a, a nice cloak for communism or socialism? Was he basically anti-capitalist 
Uh, is this some sort of proposal to no, eliminate not capitalism? at all? Um, is uh, I would say today the language that I would use is that he was both post-capitalist and post-socialism. That is to say, capitalism uh, has contributed a great deal to the human condition. The principal thing that I would say capitalism uh, has offered us is that it has increased productivity and shared it quite widely in comparison to previous systems, previous oligarchic systems, monarchical systems, etc., where all a surplus went to a very, very small class of people at the top. Whereas capitalism, by its increase in productivity of everyone in the economy, sought to produce the birth of the middle class. My own sense now is, uh, uh, following Boulding, is that that can't continue. And the reason it can't continue is that capitalism, as well as socialism, produces a surplus, but at the expense of the environment. So it is extractive. It takes things out of the earth and other people. And, and animals. And, and animals, uh, exactly. It's also uh, something that cannot continue because there's a limit to how much the earth can offer in terms of resources and human beings and animals, etc. The other part is that not only do we take out precious things that we then transform into goods and services, but we also transform it into garbage, into what we call pollution. And there's a limit to the amount of pollution that the earth can absorb. Okay, so um, socialism really is always followed on the heels of, of capitalism. And how would you say that Boulding's idea of a steady state is in Not relationship to socialism? I would say that socialism and uh, communism, and there are distinctions to be drawn to, to be sure, but the uh, principal idea is that there is lack of justice in the distribution of income of uh, that particular surplus, so that it's kept in the hands of uh, a few people. Yes, it's shared with the middle class, but there's a l limit to which it does that. So Marx's objection to capitalism was that it was unfair. It was terribly efficient. He, he's a very great proponent of capitalism, but also a great critic. That is to say, he admires the productive capacity of capitalism that it, it, it invented, and then criticizes it for, uh, for its lack of uh, justice in the distribution of the output. So the idea was that with socialism, you would borrow and not destroy, but actually use the productive cap uh, product, uh, capacity of capitalism, but then distribute the output in a much more egalitarian way. That's socialism you're talking that, that's about. That's socialism. That, okay. That's what Marxist idea was about socialism. Communism is a further derivation from that. What My was own Bolding's uh, sense, I think, would be, and there 
you know, it's mixed with my own opinion as well, and that is that neither capitalism nor socialism can solve the problem of the environment. The reason being is that both capitalism and socialism are oriented towards growth. A, a socialist economy that does not grow or a capitalist economy that is not, does not grow is an economy that is condemned, that is considered to be not a good economy. We need to keep making the pie bigger. That's right. Always. Right. <laughs> Indeed, within capitalism, there is not only an incentive, but uh, a compulsion to grow. That if you don't grow, capitalism uh, would wither. <laughs> Correct, and that's the an- that's the answer for poverty in the world. I, depending on whose statistics you use, I mean, we're still talking almost half of the population in the world is in poverty. So to suggest that all we have to do is raise the wealth of nations to a point where everyone's working, there's all growing, but we have a problem with limited resources and our pollution of those. That's right. That's right. So, for example, just uh, a few days ago, China reached an amazing goal, which is that its per capita income is $10,000. The United States, the advanced country, about 60000 Do I know something of that uh, area. So, you know, that's an, an absolutely amazing success story. But as we know, of course, is that China is doing uh, two things, has two things that resulted from this. One is that it has very, very severe uh, pollution. And the second one is that it has uh, exhausted its own physical resources, so it buys up resources mostly in Africa. Correct. So that deprives the Africans from using these resources to develop themselves. Yes, and they need to keep creating things for uh, people to keep on working. A lot of times they sh- ship their uh, employees overseas. They ship them to Africa so they can work there yes. as well. Yes, Okay, well, what we want to accomplish in this session is I believe Alec has come up with about 12? Yeah, and those are not altogether mine. They're uh, borrowed, or stolen even, from Herman Daly. Okay. Herman Daly is really the person to go to. He's uh, now about 80, I should think. And now he is started Herman Daly writing... the one that we should really attribute steady state to? Yes, the, the nomenclature of steady state economics is Herman Daly. Okay. Daly spelled D-A-L-Y. All right. So let's get started. There's about 12 points, I guess, to uh, what Daly and Boulding came up with as far as how to go about a steady state economics. And so what we want to do in the rest of our session here, I want Alec to, each one of these is going to become a separate section as we go along, but just by way of introduction, we're going to talk about 12 policies, policies, actions that we need to move towards to move towards a steady state. Yes. And before we do that, it's imperative to give a definition of what we mean by steady state. That would be great. Okay. So a steady state economy is defined 
by constant stocks of physical wealth, artifacts, machinery, etc., and a constant population of those artifacts, each maintained at some chosen desirable level, i.e. what is needed for a good life, by low birth rates, so you produce fewer people, but you keep them alive longer, so that hopefully the, healthy, the, number, the number of people that are born are no more than the people that uh, are dying. So that's a steady state part. That's from the point of view of the population. The population of artifacts is that you don't produce more uh, things than what you recycle, so that you don't add more and more and more things. Uh, if you do that, it means that you are going to be polluting and also doing away with level of resources that we've inherited. By low birth rates equal to low death rates, and by low physical production rates equal to low physical depreciation rates, so that longevity of people and durability of physical stocks are high. So, there is another way also of uh, saying the same thing. I'm going to use a third one as well so that it sticks with people. The goal of steady-state economics is to give everyone the opportunity to flourish in a sustainable way and not at the expense of other people and nature now and in the future. And still another way, stop uneconomic growth. That is, stop the economy from growing when the costs of growth exceed the benefits of growth. The discipline of economics as, constitu- as constituted present has not considered the possibility, inevitability, or necessity for stopping growth. So steady state is not necessarily anti-growth, but it's not for overgrowth. No, I would disagree with that. It maintains that it's impossible, that we can't do growth for the planet as a whole. That doesn't mean that subsets cannot grow. But in order for Africans to grow, we have to, the rich countries have to degrow. Okay. So right. the whole system cannot grow. But obviously, some subsystems can grow, but only at the expense of others. So imagine, for example, uh, having a, a, a room where you can fit, let's say, 10 people. And they can all do very well by having 10 people. But you, if you add another 10 people, another 15 people, nobody's going to do well. Correct. See, that's, that's the okay. idea. Whereas before, from the latter part of the 18th century, when capitalism started with the Industrial Revolution, there were so few uh, economies in the world. You know, there were economies, but they were not growing. So one economy can grow, like England, but the United States could also grow, and France could also grow, and Germany could also grow. Now we've come to the place where the United States can only grow at the expense of other countries growing. That's the idea. all the other countries. So that means that we're heading 
either to collapse or before that a, gre a great deal of violence because other people will not abide by having us grow at the expense of them. Or perhaps by the embrace of a steady state. That's right. That's right. Goal. That's so. what it seeks to do. Okay, so I want Alec to briefly bring up the points, the policies, the actions to be taken uh, in order for us to move towards a steady state economy rather than collapse. And Alec, I'm going to ask you just give us a, a very brief very introduction good. to each one of these points. All right. So the first one is put a tax or a quota and auction those off for the public to use natural resources. The other one is to shift the tax away from labor and capital to re natural resources, to what economists call land. And there are various kinds of land taxes that you can impose, right? Because taking away taxes from, on labor or on capital increases innovation. And innovation doesn't need to lead to growth, but to much greater efficiency. So we can have more with less. Okay. That's what efficiency means. Me, uh, thirdly, uh, limit the range of inequality in income and wealth. If we don't do that, uh, steady state economics is impossible. That's a very, very, very uh, big part of the whole. Because if up to now we've depended on growth to attend to, to the poor, if you increase the pie and everybody's income increases, then you don't get complaints from poor and the middle class. When you can't have growth, you need to redistribute income and wealth. Okay. Uh, free up the length of the working day. You know, we are a society that is uh, very rich in stuff and not uh, really very uh, rich in time. So there's a, an essay that uh, Keynes wrote in 1930 that sought to predict what was going to happen in 100 years. And his prediction was, if we are not utterly stupid and irresponsible, is that the number of hours that we work would be considerably less because we would get benefit not so much from stuff that, that we produce, but from the time that we had available to us to lead a, a great life. I'm ready for that one. Yes. <laughs> Re-regulate and reconsider the benefits and the costs of international trade. This is this the is, fifth point. This is the fifth point. Re-regulate. This is, you know, it has a lot of content, so I'm just going through the points. Yeah. Then downgrade the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and International Monetary Fund, because by and large, these organizations have been uh, very involved with growing economies, and in particular, growing the economies through benefiting uh, the ruling class. Then, with respect to banking, to... Uh, move away from the current banking system, 
where it is banks that create money, and banks are private organizations that are uh, and uh, businesses that seek to maximize profit. But we have to have such a valuable thing as money to be created by a public authority because it's a public utility. It's a public utility by nature. Then stop treating the scarce as if it were not scarce and the non-scarce as if it were scarce. What are scarce are natural resources. So therefore, you ought to put a price on natural resources and also the cost of using a natural resource. If you just gather the price from something and not pay the cost, or you gather the value of something and not pay the cost, that's called theft. Just like if I go to, uh, to a market and I get something that benefits me, but I don't pay for it. And that's what we do on a constant level. The ninth one is stabilize the population. Now, that, of course, can be uh, very, very controversial. There is the Chinese way of stabilizing the population, which now has ceased, but it was very, very violent. And obviously, that's not the way to stabilize population. What we've discovered, and this is something that holds for every society that we've studied, is that population stabilizes itself naturally beyond a certain level of income. So the Japanese, for example, uh, in Greece, uh, Italy, uh, most of Europe, the population is not increasing. Or if you take uh, Mexico, let's say, well, for rich Mexicans, they don't have very many children, whereas poor Mexicans do have lots of children because they produce a very normal calculation of if you have, let's say, 10 children, you expect five of them to die very early, and the rest are going to be your social security after that. But if you have social security and good social security, not uh, very little money, then there's no incentive to have a great, a great number of children. Reform the national accounts. That is to say, the GDP needs to be reformed. Originally, it was used, the GDP was invented in the Great Depression to measure the effect of the policies that the Roosevelt administration uh, had so to see whether they were effective. Did it increase economic activity? That was the goal, right? If you have lots and lots of unemployment, then the goal is to increase economic activity. But now we've used the GDP to measure well-being, and that's not so legitimate because Again, steady state people and philosophers and psychologists and uh, other people as well say that up to a point, having more stuff contributes to your well-being. Beyond a certain level, it doesn't. It might actually negate well-being. So you can be rich and miserable. So if we're going for well-being, that's what we ought to, to measure. Is so, and, and, and there, there are, are a number yeah, of there people. There are countries already that operate off of a happiness index, index and there are various uh, one uh, indices that have been put together by various people okay. so we can find yeah, out we'll, which ones are good and which ones are not we're going to explore that a little bit yeah and then uh, 
responsive government. Something has to be done with respect to the amount of money that is used for elections. You need to go to a place where money doesn't count in terms of who is elected. And therefore, it's possible that people will have a greater say as to what kind of government they have and also what they want the government to be doing. So if they uh, understand the perils of continuous growth to themselves, they might actually vote for governments that go in, in the direction of steady state economics. If the government is captured by very big business and corporations which are institutionally inclined to grow, then it's the will of the corporations uh, that will influence government and therefore growth in the direction of growth rather than steady state economics. Uh, I would say um, uh, another one would be, and that's part of also government as well, is to limit the uh, breaking uh, to to limit the size of oligopolies and supporting competition in markets because large corporations have a great deal of power in influencing the government and also in influencing the economy. That's it? That's it. Okay. Let me reiterate those, and these are going to be our uh, points to go by in the the days ahead. We're going to actually spend a session on each one of these. And each one of them has also tributaries, as it were. So the one about changing the banking system, well, there are two or three suggestions about how to do that or in what direction to go. Same thing with other of the uh, items there. So redistribution of income, for example, can be one version of that is the universal basic income that Andrew Yang is suggesting today over $1,000, etc. Okay, Okay, so I just want to reiterate these. First one is to cap or auction on depletion and or pollution. Number two is create an ecological tax reform. Number three, limit the range of inequality in income and wealth. Number four, free up the length of the working day per day, week, and year. Five, to re-regulate international commerce. Six, downgrade World Trade Organization, World Bank, and International Monetary Fund. Seven, move away from fractional reserve banking toward a system of 100% reserve requirements. Eight, stop treating the scarce as if it were not scarce and the non-scarce as if it were scarce. Nine, stabilize population. Ten, reform national accounts. Eleven, create responsive government. And twelve, breaking up oligopolies and supporting good competition in markets. All right, Any uh, closing thoughts before we cap this one off? It seems to me that the major task before us is to show people that this is possible. I, I made a list, a short list of what is it that might be obstacles to us getting there. 
And one of the major obstacles is uh, the economic departments of the world, <laughs> in, my, in my estimation, because the um, economists, like other professionals, treat their discipline in a dogmatic way, that this is how things are. You know, in the same way that physicists in the latter part of the 19th century thought that there was nothing more to discover. They knew it all, and, and the responsibility of physicists is to tell others how the physical world works. Right. And, and that's exactly when the relativity theory and, uh, and other kinds of new physics came into uh, considerations. Very, very interesting periods. Uh, deal with uh, media and misinformation and denial. Uh, this, uh, these are problems that we need to attend to because they tend to keep people from understanding what it's about. Also, uh, stopping uh, s speculation in financial markets. They don't produce anything of value. So uh, a lot of waste goes into something like that. I think that there are also other ingredients that economists don't attend to at all. That has to do with spiritual and psychological practices. You know, there's uh, attending to the strength of the ego that wants more and is never satisfied. Which uh, is slightly approached by uh, point number four about reducing a work week, that, that humans yes. would be able to devote yes more time to yeah but at least from spiritual teachers that we know is that the ego it tends to be addicted to having more money more power more stuff more more is its language as it were uh, rather than enough <laughs> yeah correct uh, I, I, the persistent view that that steady state economics is utopian it seems to me that without some measure of idealism and utopia, utopianism, if you will, we can't really change. But on the other hand, we have to combine utopianism with practicality. Correct. And so we've got to convince people that this is possible by, the, by examples of where it's working or where it can be it Or can where work. people are trying to trying things out and That's experimenting right. and, 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 and not and, just sitting there saying, well, this is the way it is. Yeah. Or that uh, uh, I'm in favor of another system or another way of doing things without participating in building that system, showing that it's possible. Right, right. And that, I think, is uh, something that uh, we need to reflect very, very uh, seriously because... It comes up both in the religious realm and also in the uh, political realm. So, for example, in the political realm, uh, with the independence movement in, in the United States in the 18th century, I mean, wasn't that utopian? I mean, you, <laughs> when one-third of the population only in favor of going against the Brit or throwing the British out, with, which was the, the major empire of its time, if not the the greatest one ever in history, uh, uh, and so, but that was necessary. You had to have that courage, that vision, right? And it might succeed, it might not succeed. The same with respect to Jesus. You know, he says, "Love, love your enemy." Well, 
What do we make of that? <laughs> uh, is he crazy? Is he a charlatan? Is he altogether impractical? If you're, one is a Christian or one says, no, 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 he's really serious about that, you know? So it has to be translated into to a practice and not just claim right. that we're Christians without any, uh, any basis. So I would say that there are uh, these obstacles. There are also some very, very good allies. That there are movements in the world. There are fantastic books that are out. There are spiritual movements that go for uh, undermining the egoic structure of uh, personality. There are psychological and spiritual practices that uh, uh, we can uh, have. I am very much of calling the movement not capitalism or socialism, but practical idealism in the political, economic, psychological, and spiritual realm. All right. Well... I am looking forward to exploring these individually as we go along. Hope you are as well. Absolutely. Thank you for listening.